Hello everybody and welcome to a Cana Rinse interview extra. It's been a while, we reckon about 18 months, but I'd like to welcome back author David L. Craddock. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me back on. It must mean you got some some book coming out. <laughs> yes, always books plural with me. <laughs> Arcade Perfect in a, in a few weeks and then another uh, Diablo-related project a month or so after that. Fantastic. So yeah, we're here mainly to talk about Arcade Perfect, how Pac-Man, Mortal Kombat and other coin-op classics invaded the living room. Uh, this is a subject that is right up my alley, right in my ballpark, and uh, makes a I think it make for a great companion piece to the many sort of um, retro gamer magazine pieces they've done over the years with various kind of eight-bit um, coders uh, talking about squeezing those quartz, the proverbial quartz, into pint pots of uh, <laughs> Commodore Spectrum and Amstrad conversions. But this book, uh, you're kind of covering. The gamut of the experience also from pretty much the start of home conversions all the way through to the point where it became not so much conversions as emulation. Yeah, correct. Uh, I wanted to try um, to touch on as much as I could, knowing that I couldn't touch on everything. But I initially I was going to go from um, Space Invaders on the Atari 2600 through um, some Dreamcast games, because that's kind of the point at which, yeah, uh, you know, uh, um console games kind of eclipsed and surpassed at, uh, arcade games. But then I got to talking with Al Alcorn and I said, you know, Home Pong would make a cool addition because that's one of the first instances, if not the first, where yeah. uh, an arcade game was available in the living room. Absolutely. Yes, and you've got the quote uh, towards the end from uh, our friend, friend of the show, John Linneman from Digital Foundry Retro, talking about how Soul Calibur, the version they brought home to the Dreamcast, was actually kind of a version that eclipsed the uh, the 1998 coin up they kind of went above and beyond with that one and and then beyond the, although the Dreamcast got a number of uh, coin up conversions including the one that makes up the the final sort of full chapter of of your book uh, it was at that point where we were well into the era of coin up conversions being one to one or some yeah in some cases even better yes but to take us all the way back to Pong. Uh, I've got, I mean, I could, to be honest, I could probably fill an interview podcast with every chapter of this book because there's <laughs> so much to, to talk about. Uh, you go into the history of the, the game itself as well to give some context as to why it was converted. But really, Pong is actually the, the logical and best place to start. Uh, the, the first coin-op conversion uh, and arguably the starting point of the home video game industry. Uh, so, I mean... It couldn't be couldn't be bigger, really. No, and that's kind of what fascinated me: the fact that um, you know Al Alcorn, the engineer who created Pong, had to then turn around and rebuild it um, from scratch for the home Pong unit that Atari sold. And this is back when right. you know there was no debate over which controller I should use with my console because the paddles were affixed <laughs> to the machine. Yeah. And uh, you know, also before. Um, this wasn't really software. This was hardware. Everything was hardwired in. And so there, there wasn't, you know, later in the book, I talk about how sometimes getting the code to a game might help. But in this case, Alcorn just had to say, well, I've, I have to reinvent the wheel because it's, it's a completely different kind of wheel. So many people associate Nolan Bushnell with the name Pong, but he was really the kind of the marketing man, the Colonel Sanders, if you will, of, uh, of Pong and Atari at that point. And maybe that's unfair, but, uh, it was Al Alcorn who actually coded the game or, or really it, more than coding. It was about putting a printed circuit board together. 
uh, I suppose. And uh, I mean, obviously, there's game logic in there. Right. Uh, now, I remember as a kid of the 70s, the uh, I think uh, I think is it Al Alcorn refers to them as jackals in the uh, in the book. It's, um, <laughs> yes, that was uh, Bushnell's word. But then Alcorn and a Bushnell's, lot of others right. at Atari adopted it. Yeah, so all the clones, essentially. So this was the the Wild West days, which really carried on into the mid-80s, more of which later. Yeah, and it, it's also funny how, how much things change, yet things stay the same. Back then, you know, Atari had a hit with Pong, and everybody started making table tennis clones. And yeah. fast forward to today, you know, Epic comes out with Fortnite, and now everyone's trying to do that, and just battle yeah. royale everything. Plus a change. Yes. And all that. <laughs> so you'd think, of course, getting something as basic as a playable version of Pong, just two bats and a square ball up and running on a living room TV and at an affordable price was a completely simple thing to do, right? You would think so, but uh, <laughs> no, not at all. So what's the uh, what's the sort of takeaway from that process? What, how, sort of to, to give us an idea of the, the content of, of this chapter of the book, where, where did they, how did they get going when there was no video game market? Yeah, you know, that's, that's what I found most interesting about this chapter was that, you know, Atari had a hit on its hands with Pong, but because of the jackals, they constantly had to push to come out with, really, they were iterating. If, if you know, they started with one-on-one uh, -on -one table tennis, and then they made doubles, and then they just kept trying to do the same idea. And, you know, there were all these derivatives, like, uh, hockey and soccer, which yep. are basically the same thing. Basketball, yeah, basketball, yep. and and so they were, they never really became the big Atari in all caps until the twenty six hundred. But Pong really was the, um, if not the foundation, well, the foundation was Pong, but then Home Pong was really kind of the gateway to um, them leading to the the twenty six hundred. Because with Home Pong, um, mm. you know, Alcorn and a, a small team, a handful of people working with him, had to think of everything. From you know how do we get this display in color properly on TVs? Uh, what what should the controllers take? They they went through. I write for a few pages about a struggle they find um, finding a caster, you know, someone to create the mold for this system, and they really had to just go through everything because you know as you say there was no home console market, so they had no examples to draw from, and that's what I wanted to try to capture in that chapter was you know this was before Atari. Um, raised the bar, they were still trying to make the bar before they could even raise it. And I suppose at this point, obviously, Pong had been a success. There's the famous story, which is uh, which is included in your book about the the machine breaking down because the quarter the collecting collecting mechanism, which was like a milk carton or something, uh, or a tray, you know, basically was full <laughs> of quarters. But they didn't know that you very much had probably thought you had to strike while the iron was hot. Obviously, there was the thought that maybe this newfangled TV video game and, and I suppose, you know, we were some years on from tennis for two and computer space and things like that, but there was no, it, there was no certainty that you could make a home, home video gaming, a long-term concern, or even if you could make it affordable, would people actually unplug TV was massive at this point, obviously. And we were just coming into the world of color TV and stuff like that. But to, to get people to unplug from their regularly scheduled programs to uh, to pull out the aerial and plug Pong in the back was probably a bit of a tall order in 1970-whatever this was. Oh, it was. I mean, every every part of the, the process really was a tall order. You know, I opened with an anecdote that Al Alcorn, Al, Alcorn shared with me where, you know, they went to Sears to kind of demo their, their home Pong prototype. And when they sat down to lunch, um, immediately one of the marketing executives said, 
listen, you guys better be able to deliver because we had an instance a couple of years ago where we had to, you know, delay our catalog and a whole bunch of orders for other product because of one product and no one product is worth that. And that's when yeah. Alcorn, you know, I started with that anecdote to kind of set the tone of Atari has to deliver. This could be make or break. And, um, you know, they, I, I related the story of the, the first Pong prototype arcade cabinet uh, breaking down because of an overflow of quarters to show that, you know, that was their champion. The tavern owner knew them. He didn't mind them testing new products there. So they had that first champion. It was a really important first step for arcade Pong. And for home Pong, uh, Atari's champion was Tom Quinn, a buyer at Sears in the sporting goods department. That's where they actually had to sell home Pong because no one else was really interested. Uh, and Tom said, you know what, this this looks cool, but I'm going to I'm gonna expect a lot. We need it. At least 75 i think atari said well, we can do seventy-five thousand, and tom said i want one hundred fifty thousand. and so <laughs> you know he was a champion but he's also said i can't make this easy we really need to deliver on this so at this point we were still 10 years away from the first big video game crash of of uh, the 1980s and in fact you know the the medium did get to make hay although there is i think for most of us myself included even as something of an amateur historian there is a kind of big gap between pong and space invaders but that is the next big touchstone, I think, especially for home conversions. So Space Invaders obviously was a, a huge phenomenon from 1978 for the next year or, or couple of years. And uh, I think the thing that interests me the most about this is uh, you, this chapter in the book is that you've gone, uh, you've managed to interview uh, David Leitch, who was responsible for the Game Boy Color version, which came along 20 years beyond the original release of Space Invaders. But what he did was he took a load of, uh, he kind of imbued it with his own flourishes. He added new features, used the extra power of the mighty 1998 Game Boy Color to <laughs> add visual flourishes and uh, and various other facets to Activision's incarnation of the beloved vintage Space Invaders. Absolutely. And and one of the reasons I talked with David, well, two, um, you know, he I interviewed him for about a couple of other games and he mentioned, he said, you know, my my remake of Space Invaders for the GB Color is what I'm most proud of. And I said, proudest of. And I said, well, we definitely need to talk about that. And yeah. that was an interesting project from him because, you know, compared to um, the Atari 2600 way back when, uh, yes, Game Boy Color was a lot more powerful, but he even said, even you know, even then, I couldn't create the the eleven by five array of Space Invaders from sprites. He had to no, sure. come up with some clever trickery to actually make them background objects. So when you see the Space Invaders move in that version, that's actually the background moving, and you happen to be able to interact <laughs> with it. And so you know, that's that's really what I wanted, what I love digging into in each chapter of this book. You know, the chapters yeah. range from more personal to cultural, but always there's always technical information because I wanted to impress on people that. Um, even though an arcade version of this game exists, they really had to pull out every every trick uh, in, in their bag of tricks to to make to recreate these games. Absolutely right, and of course, in many cases, uh, particularly the ones that were being converted sort of contemporaneously, or while the coin op was still present, uh, <laughs> where the, where the where the hardware was uh, considerably more powerful, the dedicated cabinet, the arcades, they were then very much having to work with the unique infrastructure, operating systems, coding base, uh, controllers, everything to, to get these arcade behemoths working on home systems. And then, and also it's not just the, the technical considerations, although that is a fascinating side of it, mm -hmm. but also in some cases, the intention to rather than just wholesale port the coin-op experience, but actually to consider what would make it 
better or different as a home consumer product. Right. And, you know, this period, the, the 70s and 80s, even into the early 90s, is so interesting because most game designers of that time cut their teeth on arcade games. So even even original mm-hmm. properties for consoles really felt like arcade games because that's all they knew how to, to build. That's right. Um, yeah. You know, they were short. You know, seven levels was a big deal. They were usually very difficult, bordering on cheap because arcade mm-hmm. games were designed <laughs> to eat your quarters. But, th- you know, you're right. Uh, one of my favorite arcade ports was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 yeah. for the NES. And that's because, you know, it is the arcade game. It's right there in the subtitle. But all the arcade levels were twice as large. They had new levels, new bosses, new little cutscenes, and I use the term loosely <laughs> there. But it, yeah. as a kid, I remember thinking, you know, this is great. This is beyond what I've already played in the arcade. This feels like um, kind of a. I didn't. I probably didn't use this term at nine years old, but kind of a Ninja Turtles one point five. It was a step beyond right. what I knew. Yeah, and in the case of obviously for for obvious reasons, uh, you've mainly spoken to if uh, Western or American based developers. But I was thinking about it was making me think about the uh, the the recent Contra anniversary collection and yes. the NES version of Contra, which I'd never played before. I'm f- very familiar with the arcade machine. Playing the NES version, it's like a, a legitimately superb game in its own right, but it's kind of takes things to to a another level in some way it really does it's it's funny um the reason i wrote this book was because as a kid i would pour over magazines when one of my favorite coin-op games had a had a home version announced i would always love to compare and contrast how does this screen look in the arcade how does it look on on my console or pc at the time and um contra was one of those games and you kind of um hinted at this but you could argue that kind of like Ninja Turtles 2, it might have been superior to the coin-op game. The, mm-hmm. I think the the color scheme was a bit... The NES was inferior to the arcade hardware, but I thought the colors yeah. popped more. I thought the characters controlled better. I really liked the feedback from firing the guns more. Um, mm-hmm. So it was one of those things where it was... You know, we were getting into a territory where... Um, it's it's almost like a book to movie adaptation where the book is your your influence, but it might not be a you know page to page adaptation. And the thing that's been a bugbear of mine, I was a very much a child of the arcades from the seventies all the way throughout the eighties and nineties. And of course, I also used to want to get home conversions where possible. I used to read the computer games magazines as it was over here, particularly in the eighties, and read about the conversions. They were. They varied wildly in quality from completely unacceptable and appalling (laughs) to incredibly impressive and everything in between. So you had to be careful. But the one thing, and this has been a bugbear of mine for 30 years, and I'm still still ranting about it now, (laughs) is when magazine reviewers used to say that the people who won't mind the flaws in this conversion are the fans of the arcade machine. And I always used to think, no, that's completely the wrong way around. The people who will notice the differences in gameplay and game behavior and mechanics and feel are the fans of the coin-op. It wasn't just a case of, well, we'd just be glad to have any version of this at (laughs) home. Far from it. No, you're absolutely right. I I remember um, when Street Fighter 2 came out, I didn't have a Super NES, but I did have uh, my grandma, I should say, had a 386, 33 megahertz PC. Yes. So I, right. I got Street Fighter 2. Oh, and no. I remember installing yeah. it. And the graphics were beautiful, but the backgrounds were still, you know, no yeah. animation. And I thought, well, that's fine. But then yeah. <laughs> um, I, there were only two attack buttons. And the characters, yeah. when they jumped, they, they looked like they were fighting on the moon. And I thought, well, maybe <laughs> this computer is just slow. So I, mm. I took the discs. <laughs> I think there were three or four. 
installed it on my 486 megahertz machine at home and it was the same thing and mm-hmm. uh, that's actually one of the versions of home conversions I wanted to cover in the book I couldn't get anyone to talk about it and everyone I contacted <laughs> said and they actually I did I did reach out to developers and they said I'd rather not and I said but yeah. I'm not here to rake you over the coals I'm genuinely interested but what I found was that you know this game started on you know Commodore 64, then someone ported it to Amiga, and then someone took that code and transplanted oh. it into DOS. And so what happened, boy, boy. Yeah, oh, yeah, you know what, it's, it's not just, it goes from the critics to the publishers. If you look on the back of the box of the Street Fighter II uh, PC conversions, they'd say, just like the arcade, and man, <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, that was the classic. One thing I wanted to say about the Space Invaders, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the 2008 DS and PSP game also came out more recently on Steam, Space Invaders Extreme. But it looked very much to me like that that version that you talked to, to David about is the kind of looks like it had some real strong influence on that later souped up version, which was actually back uh, done back in Japan by by Taito Corp itself. Oh, that's interesting. I'd like to check that out because one thing uh, David and I talked about is when he was uh, given Space Invaders, he said by that time I'd done enough um, ports of arcade games. He'd done Mortal Kombat 2, Double Dragon. He said to know that there's there's a very fine balance between adding new content and going too far astray from the source material. Because as you know, people yeah. like you and me, we we noticed that despite what the one critic <laughs> said. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and so David said, you know, it was a struggle because even though the Game Boy Advance was so much more powerful, I realized that I actually liked working within those constraints because we got to a point. I remember I played, um, when I brief, briefly wrote for IGN, I reviewed, uh, there was a Missile Command remake for Xbox Live Arcade. And it was yep. it was very flashy, but it was all sizzle no steak because they took what should have been a very easy to transplant concept and, and added too much to it. It got lost yeah, in translation absolutely. there. Yeah, they released, a, it was a oh, silver something software released, a, 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 they got a license to a, a, a small collection of uh, old atari coin-ups they did a centipede and millipede pack they did an asteroids pack fortunately they also included emulated originals in there so you didn't have to play these unpleasantly souped up versions <laughs> uh, and i still keep them installed on my xbox one to this day because they're they're all also backwards compatible but yeah that's a that's a great example of where uh gilding the lily isn't the right thing to do if you're gilding it with i don't know something unpleasant uh, you mentioned Missile Command there, and that actually forms the, the next chapter of your book. So the Atari 2600 conversion, again, we're ahead of the, the video game, big video game crash here. Obviously, the 2600 was home to a lot of coin-op conversions, the vast majority of which were compromised in any number of ways, just in terms of resolution and, and processor power. People are still making kind of crazy things for the Atari VCS hardware to this day in, in tiny amounts of K. But yeah as well as the kind of large number of relatively fast moving and high res sprites and collisions that Missile Command, it's a re- for those younger listeners, it's a very, very hectic game. It's effectively a kind of, um, I mean, it's a, it's a shooting game in the sense that you control a cursor, a crosshair rather than a, a character, uh, but your missiles come from the bottom of the screen and you're trying to save cities from Armageddon. But I guess the biggest challenge, even ahead of that, which you can at least interpret, was the coin-op had a very specific control system which was designed, was bespoke for that game with a trackball and uh, and three buttons, I think it was. So 
obviously i think was there a trackball for the 2600 available um i don't remember if there's one available i know so this paddle there might have been a paddle and i know that wouldn't have been quite the same but that's actually something rob rob and i uh, rob fullop and i the the programmer the conversion talked about he said um let's let's say there would have been a paddle available the problem was Mm. it, it wouldn't have been proprietary you know it wouldn't have been something that shipped in every 2600 box so he couldn't assume exactly players had it and so he said okay well how do i how do I make this work with a joystick, which is so much less precise than than a trackball? Eight way, one button. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. He said one button will well, it'd be easier where, instead of you know the three buttons on the arcade. You fire missiles from one of three bases. You consolidated all the missiles into one base. You just use the one button on the Atari joystick to, to fire missiles. But that way, that way, you still have to be conservative with ammo. You can't just carbon yes. bomb the screen. No. Cool. Uh, and you also, in the book, as well as uh, the official license conversions, you also devote some time to acknowledge the many interpretive clones, those jackals, that made their way <laughs> home in the, in the Wild West of those early mid-80s times. That was, uh, I mean, that was a huge industry in itself. And fortunately, back in those days, for the people who made them, the lawyers were kind of sleeping on the job and the people who made the originals were just not that savvy to it i guess and didn't pursue but the computer game charts at this point were full of games that were looked just like asteroids but they were called meteor or you know that kind of thing (laughs) yeah sometimes not even uh they didn't even try to be clever you know keith burkhill is the subject of the second half of, of chapter three more like the last quarter and he got his start by selling a missile command clone that he just called missile defense so, all right yeah and, yeah it'll scramble with a k was another one. <laughs> right right and that's actually something i wrote about a couple of years ago i um sold a book about the making of Apple II games, the Schiffer Publishing, and they actually, they liked to, they found it interesting that, you know, Broderbund, one of the games that first put them on the map was a game called Apple Invaders, which as it sounds like Mm. was just Space Invaders for the Apple II. Um, But I talked to Doug Carlson, who, um, of course, you know, he um, helped uh, Jordan Mechner publish Karateka and then Prince of Persia later. Uh, and he, he said, uh, you know, Jordan initially pitched him a clone. I can't remember w- what arcade game it was a clone of, but Doug actually had to say, I'm really sorry, Jordan, we've reached the point where, uh, you know, these big publishers are, are starting to crack down on this. I can't publish your clone. And that was a setback, a temporary setback for Jordan, because he thought, well, I got my start by as a programmer by, you know, cloning a game. That way I didn't have to think about learning game design. I could concentrate on experimenting with code. And and so it's interesting that, you know, you had you had kind of this gold rush, uh, as you said, where uh, lawyers weren't very, uh, they weren't pressing litigation at this time. So a lot of programmers really um, learned by cloning games. Absolutely. Speaking of which, the next chapter is Pac-Man, a game <laughs> that's still being cloned to this day, although possibly more cautiously with Bandai Namco. Yes. No doubt, uh, breathing down the necks of, uh, of likely clones. But back in the day, there were Monster Muncher maze games and all sorts of things. But the, the 2600 version of this classic was notoriously poorly received. So do we get from your book and your chapter on this some insight into what went wrong and why? We absolutely do. And um, I did talk to Todd Fry, who's uh, infamous for this conversion. And he was very candid. He he defended himself where he felt it appropriate. But he also said, for example, um, one of the the core thrusts of this chapter, uh, as we've as we've touched on earlier in the conversation, is Todd. He actually didn't want to do Pac Man. He was more interested in doing Defender. But another programmer at Atari snatched up first. So Todd mm-hmm. kind of begrudgingly said, "All right, all right, I'll do this Pac Man." Um, and he said that, in all honesty, he never set out to 
to create to convert the the arcade game wholesale because he thought there's no way I can do it. The Atari 2600 hardware by this point was several years old. He said, so I'm going to kind of extrapolate the spirit of the game. The spirit of the game interpret, is, yeah. yeah, just interpret it. And he said, the spirit of this game is, you know, the hockey puck character, four ghosts, some pellets, and a maze. And he said one area that if he could go back and fix it, he would, was the background of the maze was blue instead of white. And the the walls of the maze were orange instead of blue. And mm. he said, I really didn't even think to that. To me, that didn't matter. I just had, I, ha- I had a maze <laughs> wow. and I had walls. So what's the big, yeah. what's the big deal? And, you know, to a right. point, um, you almost think like, well, that, that's kind of, that's kind of reasonable because, you know, I don't need, do I need certain colors? And that's, that's something that, of course, we addressed uh, later where as hardware grew most sophisticated, um, people like us were scrutinizing these conversions to make Absolutely. sure everything was as close as possible. And just being on brand these days, you you would be talking about, obviously, with an unlimited color palette, you'd be using the Pantone colors to make sure that your Pac-Man was exactly the right shade of yellow. Now, that wasn't possible on the Atari, but you would certainly go for the next best thing. Right, right. And I also like to touch on, I touch on this more um, in the next chapter, which I'm sure we'll touch on, but um, there, these days, um, you know, Pac-Man for Atari Atari 2600 back in, in 1981 was... Um, rejected by consumers and critics um, for not being nearly close enough. But these days, people are a bit more forgiving of Todd because now we understand uh, the very, very narrow constraints in which he had to work. Absolutely. And it also brings about the conversation regarding modern games development and crunch. Some of these guys were working, they were doing crunch back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, albeit their crunch was probably the the entire development of the game and that lasted as long as the the end phase of development of uh, of a modern blockbuster but yeah it was some of these games were made under ridiculous duress well it and it's not only that you know imagine you're a guy like todd fry like david leitch where you have some some amateur hobbyist programming experience but you're hired at this company and your first project in david's case was double dragon for the the zx spectrum and for, yeah. for Todd, his first big high-profile game was Pac-Man. You're one programmer assigned a game with huge expectations. You have very uh, archaic hardware. You have of limited time and resources. And your boss is saying, gee, this better be good. Go, you know, do it. And the, the pressure to deliver as a single programmer with the, um, especially by the time Pac-Man came out and Pac-Man fever was sweeping the world, the expectations must have been just incredible for these these young programmers who were expected to, um, not only, this is their first race and you better bring home the gold. That's just crazy. Yeah. Donkey Kong, we covered fairly recently on a Cane and Rinse podcast, and we talked about various versions as, as much as we could in the in the time we had. One of the things that sort of came up as a consideration, and this is a great example of where something that we, it's a game that we look at now and we run it. I played Donkey Kong, the original arcade version, as emulated as, as far as is possible, though there was a whole legal wrangle about the original code that we go into on the, on that podcast. Mm-hmm. But I play it on my Switch and it is essentially, to all intents and purposes, identical to the original coin-op. Back then, they got it got converted by multiple people to multiple formats. There were two Commodore 64 versions that were both decent but different. Uh, there was a ColecoVision version, which Nintendo licensed out and so on and so forth. But one of the things that came up time and time again as the thing that was perhaps the most challenging was the slopes on the first level, yes. the barrels rolling down the slopes because the, the, 
everything most things in this uh, video games at this point were were built on you know especially in levels and ladders games or platform games was built on the flat so here you've got a sort of you've got physics effectively right and that's that's something that uh, gary kitchen who converted donkey kong to the 2600 for coleco that was uh that's one of the main subjects of chapter five um you know the atari had the, the play field the screen and it was it had built-in capabilities to do things like you could draw one side of the screen and then mirror the other, which was easy for platform games, such as, you know, um, you know games like um, uh, Frogger or Pong, where the two sides were basically mirror opposites of each other. But that wasn't the case in Donkey Kong because the, the sloped no. ramps would go down, you know, one might go to the left, the other to the right. And, uh, you know, Gary got to a point where he said, well, you know what? Um, the Atari just wasn't made to do this. It's eating way too much of the 4K of storage space in the cartridge ROM I have. I'm just going to make the platform straight. Um, and at this point, he also said, now, I, I was almost done with the conversion. I had maybe a couple months left, but I wanted to think ahead because I knew that, you know, being the guy who converted Donkey Kong, I'd be able to punch my own ticket. And so he started calling around to, to Activision and even Atari because, you know, in these days, those were really the only two companies making Atari cartridges. Hmm. Um, and he, he got a hold of someone at Activision who was very impressed. So the guy actually flew out to his house and took a look at the conversion. And he played it for a few minutes, and then you know they talked, and the guy prepared to leave, and and Gary said, "So what do you think?" And the guy said, "Well, Gary, I'll tell you, if you worked at Activision, those platforms would be sloped." <laughs> and so right. Gary knew yeah. I not only need to to fix this for the game because obviously players will know and be disappointed, but um, I I want to kind of build a reputation as a programmer who sees things through the whole way and he said the the downside to figuring out how to uh, slant the the platforms in level one was it took so much extra space on the cartridge he said that's one of the reasons his his conversion only had two of the four levels and he also had um you know without any offense to him inferior graphics i mean donkey kong kind of looked like a gingerbread man uh yeah. it was very noticeable on the 2600 bless him <laughs> So you mentioned the Double Dragon port there, uh, Double Dragon, another series we did uh, Canarids podcast on. Check that out, listener. I suppose the thing that strikes me about this one, and this is uh, this was a the, the story throughout, really, the, the converting to home computers and consoles in this era. So Double Dragon had forerunners in the, the Kunio Kun series. So we'd already had Renegade, which was the Western localization of Double Dragon's predecessor. Mm-hmm. But of course... And that port for the Z80 systems were was like exceptional. It was an incredibly well done port. But because the license for Double Dragon went to completely different people and a completely different studio and completely different developers, <laughs> they had none of the experience of making that predecessor or the code base to go from. So they had to start from scratch, leading to a completely, totally different looking and feeling game. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I alluded to earlier. David Leitch, this was his first high profile job, uh, Double Dragon on the the ZX Spectrum. And he said, you know, I I go into technical detail in the Arcade Perfect book, but he said the the, one of the biggest obstacles for him was color clash, um, where parts of the background, they look like a patchwork quilt where large squares are all one color and the character will take on the color of the background square as it passes through. And um, he said, he even joked, he said, if you opened up the ZX Spectrum version of Double Dragon for Christmas that year, you are allowed to curse my name because that's on (laughs) that's on me. I didn't know what I was doing, but he did the best he could. And he he said, in my defense, uh, the games he did next for the same platform were Shinobi 
and Narc, and he, he thought those turned out a lot better because Double Dragon really was was for all intents and purposes his training wheels. Test bed, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh, and to be fair to him, a lot of the other versions of that were terrible as well. <laughs> yeah, Double Dragon was kind of a cursed game. Even the versions that were good, a lot of people had uh, took umbrage with. Um, for example, I played the NES game, and I'd never played Double Dragon in the arcade. I just knew it. Uh, okay. I still know it best as an NES game. Yes, so I didn't, a lot of people did. Yeah, and so I never realized, for example, then in the NES... Tiny sprites. Yeah, very tiny sprites, but you also you level up to earn all your attacks. You don't have things like the, the over-the-shoulder throw or the headbutt right mm. out of the gate. You have to level up to, to earn those. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting bit of history for me. Next up, we have Tetris, another game that we covered on the podcast. And again, we tried to cover some of the official versions, but obviously there have been so many. <laughs> Entire books have been written and films have been made, uh, fiction and documentary about the complex history of the licensing of Tetris. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the game was programmed on a Soviet bloc era business computer, basically, a, you know, or a serious machine, I should say, in 1984. So... How hard could it possibly be to get this rudimentary shape-shifting game running on home micros? Well, surprisingly difficult, as it turned <laughs> out, because I played some dreadful versions. Like, obviously, the Game Boy version was sublime. Obviously, Atari's coin-op version was fantastic. And the Commodore 64 version was... And again, this is a game where all the different versions were very distinctly different from one another. But the Amiga got at least two official terrible versions of... Uh, of Tetris. So which uh, which converters did you get to talk to for Tetris? Um, for this one, I, I, I wanted to really focus on the Tengen version um, for NES because I had an opportunity to talk with Ed Log, whom I've spoken with before. And I also covered it because what, one thing I like to do with all of my books is I like to try to, to find angles on stories that maybe either haven't been told or explored in detail. And Tetris uh, by Tengen fascinated me because it was one of the rare instances where um, this wasn't a game that came from the arcade to the home console. This was a game that Log wrote for the Famicom, and his code was used as a base for the arcade game. So I kind of yeah. I found the reverse order fascinating there. Mm. Um, I also did get to speak to the converter of uh, the version, the one of the Amiga versions of Tetris, uh, and <laughs> I, I included an interview with him. It'll be in it's one of the book's uh, bonus chapters. So I thought that was really fascinating. Yes, uh, quite a storied history uh, Tetris has. Uh, they seem to have nailed it most, <laughs> mostly now, although it's not, that, <laughs> it's not so long ago we got some really poopy versions uh, for download. But uh, Tetris Effect has kind of made up for that and Tetris 99 because Arika's got hold of that and uh, they know how to make a Tetris game. They do. Uh, Tetris 99 is actually my favorite Battle Royale game. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's so tense as well. Uh, Street Fighter 2 we've already mentioned the reason I wanted to ask you about this one was because you talked to uh, Frank Sfaldi and uh, Digital Eclipse and that's a name that I associate primarily with the emulation era of home versions so when really I wasn't that interested in retro ports that were ports it was when they started bringing compilation discs to the PS1 we got the Namco Museum collections we got the williams arcade classics collections those were all digital eclipse and then recently uh he frank Sfaldi was particularly involved in going the extra mile digital eclipse kind of really uh, enhancing their own reputation by bringing a street fighter anniversary collection to modern systems worthy of the name 
Yes. So in, in Arcade Perfect, I not only wanted to write about ports, again, always on the hunt for, for different angles. I wanted to talk to the folks at Digital Eclipse because I was a huge fan of Street Fighter 30th Anniversary Collection. And so I thought emulation would be an important discussion. And I talked with uh, not only Frank Cifaldi, but uh, Mike Mika, the, the studio head, Mike Mika, and um, Daniel Filner, who happened to be, he's kind of a Street Fighter emulation expert. Uh, he he wrote the emulator for uh, Arcade 1-Up's Cabinet. He um, and obviously wrote the emulator for the 30th anniversary collection, but his involvement with it dates back to some of the Capcom arcade compilations for the PlayStation 2. And he said that um, over the years, he's built his own proprietary Street Fighter emulation library so that when he gets a new project, he has a base to build on. And uh, what I primarily talked with him about are a lot of the subtle differences in Street Fighter 30th Anniversary's games, 12 in total, that you might not notice right away, but that he had to change things because of various licensing and legal issues. For example, yeah. uh, there's um, there are crates in Chun-Li's Chinese market stage that um, are red with the uh, white Coca-Cola swish through them. And he said, uh, yeah. and he said, you know, Capcom said, well, we better change those. So he said, now he didn't have um, the arcade game's code, he only had the means to, in within his emulator, um, kind of jump around code and and coax it into replacing pixels here and there. And so he he repainted the those boxes into kind of like a generic gray to slip those in. Um, he changed the the U.S. Air Force logo on the floor of Guile's stage. A little things like that that I, I wanted to to educate readers about kind of the some of the complexities of emulation. And I found that chapter, mm. that was a lot of fun to write. Superb. And yeah, great compilation too. Talking about uh, considerations of bringing things home and not only the, yeah, again, not the, just the technical side, but also the technical, um, sorry, the non-technical side, but the licensee and platform holder stipulations and things like image rights. Uh, you've got a chapter on Terminator 2 Judgment Day and the, obviously that was a, a massive license in 1991. I can't remember. Does that one have, does that does that have Arnie in it actually as Arnie, or is it one of those where the the laws around image rights were they had to make a, an Arnie-ish looking guy? Oh no, they they actually had Arnie. That was one of the, yeah. the their big selling points. Where you know right. they got um, Arnold and I I can't remember the name of the kid who played John Connor, Edward something I think. But yeah, oh yeah, uh, they you know they lent their their uh, likenesses and even their Furlong. yeah yes yeah, yes thank you um their likenesses. Their voices to it, and uh, uh, that was a really that was a really fun chapter because that was an instance where uh, neither programmer uh, David Leitch, who did the Game Gear and Master System versions, and Paul Carruthers, who brought us Sega Genesis and Mega Drive, um, they didn't have the code. In fact, Paul was given a videotape of someone playing all seven levels, so he would watch the tape, he would pause, he would code. And, and and paint and he could just kind of go back and forth that's how he made <laughs> uh terminator 2 so that's why he said he has to admit that the super nes version is superior because they must have had access to more resources where he said oh, yeah. if you look at his stages there are little things left out just because he missed some of the small details as he was looking between a videotape and and his code that was so common i read so many kind of developer diaries and stuff back in the day where occasionally the programmers would say and we actually managed to secure a coin op either the, the the label or the the original 
owners of the you know the, the people they got the license from right. sent them a coin op to play because they they actually recognized that hey maybe it's important if we let the programmers actually make a decent fist of converting this thing right. but i genuinely read accounts of co coders having to go to their local arcade to play the game that they were professionally and officially porting to home systems yeah i mean yeah it's extraordinary it, it really was paul said he did that occasionally but when he ran out of quarters he went back home to the videotape yeah yeah extraordinary uh and occasionally you would say they would say actually we got some insight into the game code and we got some development assets and, and art and things like that but it really was different times it's uh it's probably hard to to impress upon uh people who weren't there at the time just how kind of yeah unprofessional it all was i suppose especially when it came to sort of japanese coin-ops being licensed to British-based coders and things like that, whereas there's just, you know, overseas, it was a long way away. There were, all we had were fax machines and telephones. <laughs> so there was no sharing of uh, Dropbox and, you know, code assets and things like that. No. But also I wanted to talk about, so the book's going to come out and this podcast will come out almost simultaneously with the book uh, on the anniversary of Mortal Tuesday. Yes, uh, Mortal Monday actually September. Mortal Monday, September that's what I meant. Well, there there actually I'm was of Sonic Tuesday. I think the, oh, <laughs> Sonic Monday. Tuesday, and I think there was. Uh, I think Mortal Tuesday is actually a thing. I think that was Mortal Kombat Two. So it was actually Kombat a Tuesday or a Friday. So. I don't remember off the top of my head, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. And I in the Mortal Kombat, there's a, one chapter from Mortal Kombat, another from Mortal Kombat Two. But for the Mortal Kombat chapter, I wanted to write a lot about the pressure felt by a sculptured software who did the the Super Famicom and uh, Super NES versions. Yeah. And, great in some ways. Oh, yes. Great in some ways. Certainly graphically. Um, yeah. And uh, then, you know, Probe, who worked on the Mega Drive version. Um, because it, it was very interesting culturally. You know, Jeff Peters, who was a, a director at Sculptured, said that, you know, you have to realize that Sculptured software was, was based in Utah. It was very heavily Mormon. And it got to the point mm. where um, when, when they – when Acclaim – pitched the mortal Kombat conversion a lot of programmers went to jeff and said you can't tell my family i'm working on mortal Kombat. i cannot be associated with that if they come by just tell them i'm working something on something else uh, jeff even said that he was ostracized in his neighborhood the adults stopped talking to him but the kids would sneak over to his house knock on his door and say hey we heard you've got mortal Kombat. can we play it and that's that's really what happened that happened to me as a kid my my dad didn't like me playing it but that only you know the forbidden fruit was that much sweeter oh yeah, and uh, it, it was really interesting. Also, because Sculpture knew that it, it kind of had one hand tied behind its back. They knew that Nintendo would absolutely mm. not allow a blood code, which the the Mega Drive version did have, and they kind of expected a Sega and Probe to wipe the floor with them on that conversion. And the hilarious thing was, just a year or so later, they allowed the full <laughs> gore in the sequel. They would ju they just completely relented and relinquished on that, which was still peculiar to me and obviously since then the kind of the floodgates opened in terms of nintendo's had all kinds of violent and gory games on but that was the kind of the t i think mortal kombat 2 it was was probably the turning point it, yeah. it was and really really mortal kombat 1 was because nintendo saw those sales numbers i mean sega genesis right. did you know some records say outsold them five to one others say ten to one either way they got yeah. they got trounced and and the super nes version was 
uh, graphically and in terms of content superior to the Genesis version. And it, it's so funny how even today Nintendo's kind of wishy-washy. I shouldn't say today because this was over 20 years ago, but I remember playing <laughs> Resident Evil 2 on Nintendo 64, and it had blood. But there were also options to make the blood blue and green. And I just remember thinking, come on, Nintendo. Let's just yeah. let's all just move on from this and be adults now. Yeah. But then we got, uh, like, uh, uh, what's that? Get Mad World on the Wii. And, uh, yeah. And, like that, and of so. course, the, uh, for a while, the exclusive, the Resident Evil remake uh, on GameCube, Absolutely. which is just fantastic. So I can't complain too much, I guess. <laughs> uh, and was it, I think it was the same. I played the MDA, NBA Jam games on both. Mega Drive and SNES. I think was it the. I mean, it was the same arcade hardware. Uh, was it the same conversion teams for that? So yes, it was. It was a uh, Iguana UK, and for for that particular version, I spoke with uh, a gentleman named Jules Watcham, who was a an artist at Iguana, and he worked in the Austin studio at the time. And what was funny was. He said that NBA Jam became a pastime for lunch breaks. Most people would just wolf down some food and then go to the break room and, and play four-player NBA Jam. And they were actually kind of jealous in, in a friendly way when um, their compatriots across the pond got to do the home conversion. But what happened was um, the the UK studio was a bit shorthanded. And so Jules and a few other artists were sent over to help them finish production. And so I got to learn some very interesting information about the particulars of working on of one, of one studio working on conversions for both the Mega Drive and the SNES, um, mm. for example, and I did notice this, but I never really realized why. Um, Jules said that typically in that case, and it was the case with NBA Jam, the Mega Drive was the lead skew because yeah. the resolution of those games tended to be close to the arcades, where uh, Super <laughs> Nintendo's resolution was tended to be a bit wider. So he said what they yeah. would do is they would get the art working on the Mega Drive and then work on kind of um, kind of narrowing it out and fixing it for the SNES. So I found that pretty interesting. Yeah, they were, they were good ports. They were solid. Oh, absolutely. They, uh, they absolutely captured. You could tell, you know, to, to to the eye, you could tell that they were slightly compromised, but really they did a very good job of, of coming exceptionally closer than perhaps could be reasonably expected on, on with the with the power of that Midway Williams arcade tech that they had at that point was uh, was mighty impressive stuff. And in fact, in one case, they were allowed to get even closer, although not many people will have played it because it was on the Mega Drive or Genesis 32X. But they actually got to do an enhanced port of Mortal Kombat 2 even closer to the arcade machine for that uh, funny little add-on mushroom. <laughs> yes, I, I actually... Uh, so the Mortal Kombat 2 chapter, I, I cover the Game Boy... SNES, Mega Drive, and 32X version, because the 32X was a very fascinating add-on to me, um, because, you know, it kind of, it it relied on the Genesis as a coprocessor, and in Mortal Kombat 2, I thought it was an interesting case study of how uh, Cameron Shepard, who converted that game, said that for the most part, you know, the Mortal Kombat 2 on Genesis provided the logic for the 32X. What he did was get everything running with um, better artwork and sound samples, but the interesting part of it was um, there are a lot of, of parts in his conversion that weren't changed. Uh, for example, um, there are more sound effects uh, and richer sound effects on the 32X, but the they still yeah. use the Genesis uh, soundtrack, which really wasn't yeah. uh, arcade perfect. And also, there's some missing animations. As a big Mortal Kombat fan, I noticed these. When Katana throws her fan, she only raises her arm halfway, and, and some of the victory mm. poses were changed. And so I found that interesting, kind of 
talking to Cameron about why this was different, but this was the same and why this was working on third QX, but this drew from Genesis. And we had a really fun conversation about that. Fantastic. And Cameron Shepard went on to set up Crawfish. Is that right? He, the, he did. The company res- responsible for first the seemingly impossible Street Fighter Alpha for the Game Boy Color. But then I th- genuinely think probably one of the most impressive, mind-boggling conversions in the history of the medium of actual conversions is the Game Boy Advance version of Street Fighter Alpha 3. How did they achieve this seemingly impossible feat? Uh, it was... I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I think that that might be when you compare, when you juxtapose the hardware of the GB Advance to the arcade, oh. it is really mind blowing. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, it had Magic. it had every character from the arcade plus four more, and I know. that's that's just mind boggling. And um, that chapter actually has kind of a sad ending. Um, I spoke with Keith Burkill, who uh, he said um, he was intrigued by my book, and he actually hasn't done an interview for years. Uh, mm. And the reason why was because um, what happened was Cameron Shepard and the other managers at, at uh, Crawfish overpromised to Capcom. They said, yes, we can squeeze this entire game into an eight megabyte cartridge. Oh, and, right. and they did it. But the problem was, you know, from the very beginning, Keith went to Cameron and he said time and again, if you give me 16, this will be even better. You know, it, I know it looks great, it plays great, sounds great, but this will be even better. And I need the room because I'm going to have to cut levels. They they didn't include the world tour mode, and that really upset Capcom, who was mm. already kind of upset because actually Capcom, a division within Capcom, was very angry and hurt that they didn't get to convert their own game; that it went to an outside studio. Huh. And so what happened was um, they missed. You know, the, the the plan was that Street Fighter Alpha Three would launch day and date with the Game Boy Advance in the holidays 2001. They missed it by almost two years, and Capcom said, you know what? Yeah. You get no royalties. They didn't make a dime off of Street Fighter Alpha 3, and that oh, that yeah. caused – that in conjunction with a perfect storm of other events, such as um, over-promising on some other contracts, caused Crawfish to collapse. The problem was mm. um, Cameron and Keith had a falling out. Cameron blamed Keith. Uh, Fergus McGovern, who, who passed away somewhat recently, yeah. uh, was Cameron's friend, sided with Keith, and Keith said he has found himself um, kind of blacklisted from games. He has not been able to get work doing a game since uh, Street Fighter Alpha 3. But he said, you know what, I'm still, it's still the best thing I've done to this day. And he really should be proud of it. It is absolutely a phenomenal port. God, I I can't even imagine if they'd had double the the cartridge space, it could have been even better. It would have been like holding a, well, before the PSP, it would have been like a portable PlayStation version, because really, all they were really missing were a few sound effects. You know, they needed two more buttons, obviously, but um, yeah, you know, a few, frames of animation, presumably. Yeah, frames of animation, a few more stages, and, the, and that world tour mode. But if you wanted, mm. I mean, at that time, that was the closest to an arcade experience on the go that I had ever played. And even as a kid, I just remember thinking, how did, it was like some sort of black magic. I couldn't wrap my head around it at all. And I saw just from uh, looking up Crawfish earlier today that uh, Cameron Shepard set up Crawfish Interactive now with an H. Yes. So there's another, I don't know what exactly what they're doing, uh, but Crawfish is back, but with an H. Yes, yes. And that's good. Yeah, that's that's great. But I I like kind of um, doing the the three to six degrees of of, uh, separation through the story. You know, you know, David Leitch and Cameron were friends and David and Keith knew of one another and they both worked 
for Cameron at Crawfish, but a lot of them were remote, so they'd never really interacted. And it just, it just, I, I always like to remind readers in anything I write that the games industry, despite being this multi-billion-dollar juggernaut, is still quite small in a lot of ways. Mm, yeah. So your final main chapter before the bonus content uh, is about San Francisco Rush 2049. Uh, this is one of Ed Logs, the man behind Asteroids and Centipede, Millipede, Gauntlet, one of my all-time favourites. Yes. But this is an interesting one because it arrived at a transitional point in the home gaming industry, ended up appearing converted for three distinctly different machines, N64, PS1 and Dreamcast, which all required completely, would have been very different uh, sort of considerations to to get those up and running but then it was emulated as part of a compilation on the next gen systems on the ps2 xbox and gamecube uh, so what's the what's the story here what i really wanted to talk to to ed about since he worked on the n64 and dreamcast conversions were the fact that you know the n64 especially for midway games was a pretty high point for arcade to home conversions uh, i remember playing mortal kombat 4 and it was one-to-one -one. you know the playstation had a better looking ending cinematics, but it also had loading time that, mm. that really interfered when you played as, you know, Shinnok, who did the character morphs that had to load every time he transformed. Um, and he said, Ed said that, you know, uh, San Francisco Rush 2049 is pretty arcade perfect on the N64. The exception being that he had to add some, some fog in the distance to kind of cloak the pop in that happens as you, as you race. Um, yes. But he said the Dreamcast is still one of his favorite consoles to code for just because you know and i i kind of lead into san francisco rush by talking about the soul caliber per, uh conversion how we'd officially entered into an era where arcade perfect um we were improving upon arcade perfect's perfection uh you know san francisco rush 2049 dreamcast had more modes um just better mm -hmm. better animations better uh, frame rates it was just this this gorgeous conversion and i also like to talk to him about um um, the battle mode, which I have friends who in college, they feigned surprise when I said, you know, there's, there are racetracks too. Like all they wanted to play was battle mode. It was very, <laughs> very popular in dormitories. Bit Mario Kart-esque yes. in that respect. Yes. For sure. Well, uh, I could probably go all the way back round to chapter one and talk to you a lot more about each uh, each game all over again. And also, I mean, I know you've done sequels to your books before. Or you're, you're working on one now. Uh, there's definitely... I would suggest more more to be uh, investigated and and shared with people like me for a, oh. maybe a future project. Oh yes, I, I do have sequels and, and maybe even some other special projects in mind. This is um this is one of those books that I wrote it. Um, I've I've been pretty much working twenty five days a week. Uh, twenty wow, that'd be something. Uh, twenty five hours a day, eight days a week. <laughs> that busy. That's crunch. For, yeah, that's crunching. Um, but it, it's been so fun. Arcade Perfect was one of those projects I just decided to start writing. I wrote the whole thing and revised it within two months. It was it's some of the most fun I've had writing anything. Mm. And um, I can imagine I could just I could keep doing because the, you know there are platforms I never even got to touch on because my my yeah. sort of self governed policy for these books is. I don't like to write about a version of any game unless I can talk to people who work on it because I don't want to just retread ground. I, I want to get new information, new insight. Um, and so I couldn't find any um, designers and programmers, artists, so forth, who had worked on Neo Geo games. And Neo Geo is obviously very important mm. in arcade history because the yeah. uh, the arcade hardware was the home console hardware and, and vice Indeed. versa. So that's definitely something I plan to tackle in the, in the near future. Mm. And some STV and Naomi stuff, perhaps. As Absolutely. Well. I mean, there's just there's so much ground you could cover. 
Uh, I, I tried to dabble in, you know, I love, I loved light gun games. So I wrote about Terminator two. I, I love racing games. So I brought in San Francisco rush. I love fighting games. I love beat em ups. I love arcades kind of the same for you. They were, it was a second home for me. Um, and I really, I'm, I really miss the days of, of arcade games kind of leading and pioneering, but I'm also very satisfied, uh, as a fan of those games that there's so many great compilations, you know, from, from Konami's to D- Digital Clips, just doing great work in that area. It's we, we're playing arcade perfect versions today, um, and have been since the PS One, since you mentioned. But especially on Switch, I love the fact that I was traveling just a couple oh. weeks ago, and I, I fired up Street Fighter Two in my hotel room, and I was playing an arcade perfect version because it was the arcade version. So, absolutely, yeah. And God, God bless uh, Hamster and M Two yes, and all yes. those people bringing those amazing uh, home versions at affordable prices. And oh. also Digital Eclipse, because I also want to give uh, Frank Svaldi credit for the SNK 40th anniversary collection, which is just uh, for, for video games, historians and ch- children of the arcades. It's a beautiful package. So well done to everybody who's taking this uh, preservation seriously. Absolutely. Uh, and well done to you on this, uh, on this obviously uh, obvious passion project of a book. Arcade Perfect will be out as you listen to this podcast, uh, how and where can people get it? Well, you can always start at arcadeperfectbook.com. There I, I share all sorts of excerpts and links to fun stuff. But uh, it will be it'll be in bookstores. It will be in paperback. Um, and if you want it electronically, it will be available on Kindle. Superb. And it's uh, it's over 400 printed pages. So it's a, it's a nice, weighty, a meaty-ish tone. It is. For, uh, and that's even before you delve into the, the bonus interviews, which you can skip, but I advise you not because there's plenty of great stories in there. Excellent. Well, once again, David, thank you very much for joining me. It's always a pleasure. And uh, I hope we can talk again soon about, uh, no doubt, your next book, which is always imminent. Yes, it always seems to be on the horizon. And thank you very much for having me on again. I always enjoy our conversations. 